Thank you for listening to Wolfcast and Pod, the episode-by-episode breakdown of Angel the Television series. We will be discussing each episode in detail, so we have no concern for spoilers and the like. Please enjoy. Oh my goodness. This is the third one in as many months. Why can't they ever do it in their own homes, for God's sakes? I should have seen it coming. The guy did seem pretty depressed. Oh, really? How could you tell? Kind of cheap, though. The Death Wishers usually tip better, like they know they're not going to take it with them anyway. See, if you look at the way his body's laid down, you can tell a lot about whether Three and three months. They'll shut you down. Yes. They will. So who do you want me to call first? Carpet cleaner or the cops? What? Who do you want me to call first? Carpet cleaners or the cops? Don't be mad. No one's calling anyone. They'll shut us down. Yeah, but what about him? What about him? He's dead. We can't just leave him here. Of course not. We'll um, store him in the meat locker. Store him? We're going to store him? Incoming message from Higher Powers. It's another episode of Wolfcast and Pod, the podcast where we discuss and break down each episode of Angel the Television series uh, in a manner which will likely take you longer to listen to than it would just to watch the show. Joining me, Ruben, aka Wolfcast, in that time wasting quest is my friend and yours on the other line. We call her Marsha or Pod. Hey, how's everyone? Hey, Pod, how's it going? It's good. What about you? Ready for fall slash winter? Um, my classes just started, and they both seem pretty good, so that's exciting. But that also means that um, what I should have been doing this summer, which is readying a application for graduate school, is even more urgent and necessary now. So that is anxiety producing and scary oh no but (laughs) yay grad school yeah yeah yay rejection (laughs) i want to do a a research proposal for next year it's so strange having to do things basically a year in advance of when you want to actually do them Mm -hmm. academics academics Speaking of or operating from out of the past. Work. <laughs> <laughs> Today um, we're going to be discussing episode two of season two called Are You Now or Have You Ever Been? In case you're wondering, uh, although I'm pretty sure it plays in the background of one of the scenes, the title of this episode comes from a quote from Joseph McCarthy uh, during the communistic witch hunts when he was saying, Are you now or have you ever been a communist? It's one of the questions that he asked people. Marcia, give us that old plot description. This is a now and then flashback episodes. In the present, Angel asks Cordy and Wes to start investigating Hyperion Hotel 
and they find out that there's been a string of murders and strange incidents, really paranormal activity. And then in the past, we see that Angel actually stayed there in the 50s and got involved in an intrigue with a woman who ended up having committed a bank robbery, and she's hiding out in the hotel. People in the hotel are going crazy, people are killing themselves, um, <laughs> and it ends up being a paranoia demon. Uh, it turns out the woman had all the money, but it turns out she was she was actually mixed, and that was her big secret that she was hiding and running away from. And everything at the hotel sort of implodes. And then in the present day, they go and raise the demon so that they can kill it. And then they have a hotel. Mm-hmm. I really like this episode. Um, it has probably since the first time I watched Angel been one of my first, uh, one of my favorite episodes, and I don't think it's ever really left um, that designation. In fact, I pretty much consider it a marker, even though there are some uh, uneven episodes in season two before I would say completely hits its stride in mid-season. Um, I think that this can definitely be seen as sort of a marker from where Angel was in season one to, you know, the rest of the show. Like, episodes that I have problems with in later seasons and storylines and stuff like that still, in essence, fit the Angel mold that has been established fully by this point. Um, and I'll get into my complaints, you know, as we go into the episode, but A+. plus. This episode rules. <laughs> yeah, this episode is amazing. I love how it builds up the tension, and it's not just a bunch of jump scares. It really gets into its stride. Mm -hmm. It's a very beautiful episode, which I always appreciate, but it also has substance to it. It really reads... Um, it's, it's like a different level of storytelling from most of the episodes. So it, this is definitely Something a that episode. you and I have disagreed on in the past is Warners and our enjoyment of long shots. I love and them. I think you love them in part just because you really appreciate the technical expertise that goes into making them and that there's just sort of like... They're very impressive, obviously, and I think <laughs> that is true, and that I dislike them for that reason, because I think a lot of directors overuse them because they want to sort of show off, like, how much money they have or how they're able to, you know, put all these things together. I would say that Paul Thomas Anderson is probably the worst offender. <laughs> as the episode's far as so this goes. beautiful. See, I think it's also um, even... But no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not I'm done sorry. with the point, but, which is to say that I think this is the, the episode where Warners are the best used and that the like sort of back and forth storytelling of the past and the present um, to some people might seem gimmicky or a way to make an episode of television seem like more standout, like, you know, in the way that um, like an episode like Hush and Buffy kind of feels to me now. Um, that the gimmick there doesn't work, but I think that those things are super thematically relevant in this episode because 
I think aesthetically it implies, continues to imply how the past shapes the present and how, you know, even if like this is a different hotel than it was in uh, the time that Angel was staying there, that it's what happened there still continues to affect it, that this paranoia demon is a literalization of the way in which, you know, the history of a place continues to affect it. Yeah, definitely. And my thought on one-offs is that even deeper than that, I enjoy staring at things for a long time. And I think that every day has like sublime moments. And I think we've talked about this before, but I think you don't really enjoy uh, like everyday normal, just like, I don't know, staring at like a thing like I do. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Uh, I don't know if we've talked about that, but I definitely have enjoyed that from time to time. Like, um, but I definitely have more problems with it than some people. Like, uh, there's a Loose Cannons podcast where we were discussing uh, a film art movement in which sort of one of the theses is, is about the idea of intentionally boring the audience because then it makes the film experience different for each individual viewer because if you're no longer paying attention to the film then you're no longer having the exact same experience and the audience is having their own unique experience as a viewer um, because they're thinking about you know the things they might normally think about while they're at the film as well as thinking about the film and then, when Basil was explaining that to me, I was like, that sounds really interesting on paper, but in practice, I hate it. Well, also, I think that <laughs> overstates the importance of the film for people watching it, because I don't know that there's a time in my life. Oh, I think it's well, more playful yeah, yeah, than, but you know, than like, that. I don't think it's as pretentious. Nobody's going to have but... the same experience as everyone else, right? Yes, that's true. But there's definitely a gradient there in the sense that, like, you know, narrative film is fairly, is a lot closer to propaganda and that it's supposed to, you know, have kind of a controlled emotional wavelength that it creates in people. And, you know, the more abstract you get, the less likely people's are going to take away, you know, similar experiences from a film. Um, so fun story, there's this show called Once Upon a Time. Have you seen any of it? never a full episode it's like a fantasy urban fantasy slash costume drama every single episode is a flashback like this episode every episode and it's five seasons long Mm -hmm. and after like the first season i was like really but i have to watch all of it now because i've watched so much of it but they're still doing the flashbacks every episode and uh unlike in that show Mm -hmm. i actually really enjoy it here Yeah. Um, but I guess let's get into it. So the episode starts with Angel, you know, delivering a new case to the crew. Um, he wants them to investigate the Hyperion Hotel. And uh, my first note is um, cinnamon in the blood because uh, Cordelia is trying something new to literally spice up Angel's life and at first he thinks that the blood has gone bad. (laughs) 
<laughs> but she, she always has to deliver it in a clear glass bottle too. It can't be like in a coffee mug or anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although one of the funniest images in all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is Spike chained up in Giles' bathtub, sipping blood from a mug that says, um, I think, <laughs> kiss the librarian <laughs> and through a straw as Buffy sits over the tub, holding the mug out for him. Um, so yeah, the, um, he presents them with this case and they're like, who's the client? And he's like, there's no client and uh, what's our interest here? And Angel's basically, you know, sort of uh, standoffish about what's going on. He's just like, something strange is going on in this hotel. And obviously we were introduced to it in the previous episode when he ended up there trying to escape some demons and uh, you know we had like a scene of him sort of like uh, as Joey Tribbiani and friends once put it smelling the fart like you know like mm, who who farted face (laughs) when he was in the hotel so he knew something was up with it I really liked (laughs) they started out with a picture Um, uh, old picture and then they faded into the hotel in present day or no the mm-hmm. hotel in the past like we were stepping through the picture which yep, yep. classic it's after awesome. effects early it's after awesome. effects trick very fun <laughs> I don't think I could make it look nearly as good but a lot of times when I see a trick I'm like oh I have no idea how to do that and I have to look up a tutorial but I'm fairly sure how to do that one you take a very high quality still image from the video and then you create a fake you know layer in front of it of the fence and then they you know they just fade out the fence as they start the actual video of the you know thing going in and you just have to make sure that the fence changes perspective as it's fading out and as the camera is zooming there in. were a lot of special effects in this episode too Pretty and cool i think that, stuff. One, that one was probably Fun my effects. favorite yeah it's um I mean it's obvious that the show has more budget than season one and that uh um that you know they now trust it to be like Buffy and are willing to give it like a a Buffy level budget which it didn't seem like in season one in most points but I also think that like thinking about the season as a whole that like this episode and then the season ending arc like that they spend most of their money <laughs> here and there because there are definitely like some parts in the middle of the season where I'm like I feel like they could have made a better demon or something here and then I'm like <laughs> oh right they probably spent a lot of money on are you now and have you ever been <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can always tell when a show gets more money because the lighting gets so amazing like mm. normally they're just like ah just put up some lights just just get everything and i mean the hyperion hotel as a set itself is uh, just a big jump forward from the the office that they used to be in which seemed like it was a real location and then angels uh you know sort of basement was uh, probably an actual set um but a lot less complex and intricate than the hyperion hotel so when we go back into the past, it's like normal, well, really busy, I guess, by yeah. today's standards, a really busy hotel. Super busy. And uh, we get all these, you know, interconnected, well, not interconnected, 
in the sense of that they have relationships with each other, but interconnected lives in the sense that they all have, as Angel will put it later, um, something to hide. You know, we've got uh, like a guy who is obviously closeted homosexual, um, another person who's an alcoholic, uh, another person who, you know, um, sleeps with the producers in order to get jobs, stuff like that. And, you know, this is all happening as hinted both by the title and uh, obviously by a TV at one point under the uh, cloud of the Red Scare Menace and just the general idea of people having a personal life that they feel like is uh, at any point could just be thrown out into the public and used against them. Yep. I really like the actor who plays um, the bellhop. Yeah, me too. For most of the episode, <laughs> I was wondering if the, if he even heard the demon voices or if he was just that messed up on his own, you know? <laughs> but I think he does. He has like a really fun, ticky quality yeah. to him. And um, I was like, I was like, man, I like him so much in this episode. I was like, I wonder if there's other stuff that I've seen him in or other stuff that I should see him in. And so I looked at his acting credits and the only thing that I had seen him in is in the season of Community where they rep- they kidnap the Dean and replace him He's with the a fake, fake dean? dean. He plays the fake Dean. Oh my God. Yeah, the fake Dean. I love him as the <laughs> fake Dean. Um... Dolly exclamation point. This is going down the what, wait, hallway. And I think it might actually be... What did hmm? you say? I said Dolly exclamation point because I was really excited by the Dolly oh, shot down the hallway. Oh, I thought you meant like Salvador. And, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. Yes. Moving camera shot. Um, and, uh, I wrote down, I think this might be the same hallway from season one. Or that, like, would they use this hallway over and over again and just keep dressing it up differently? There's, like, a scene in season one in Expecting where Angel's walking down, like, a dimly lit hallway with, like, flickering lights or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this is the same hallway set. There's something about it that feels very familiar, but now they've made it um, disturbing in a different way. That way it's, you know, very horror, but this is very, you know, sort of, like, leave it to beaver except for you know that there's something like underneath that's like you know disturbing it reminds me of in buffy when angel goes to the hell dimension and everything's fine but it's not fine <laughs> i think that's a great that's an angel what is that an angel this is season five angel oh just kidding the, for some reason i thought that was in buffy the suburban hell dimension yes yeah, that's season five, Angel. Apparently, I can't wait to get to season five. Yeah, you're a big fan. <laughs> I hope I like it more than I liked it the last time. I hope I, I like it, it as no. much. <laughs> Not <laughs> that I didn't like it, oh. but... I'm worried now. I'm going to see it again and be like... <laughs> uh. um, so, um, Bellhop is like, oh, this guy gives me the heebie-jeebies, and he's like being all upset that he has to get yeah, and deliver the, someone The manager mail. says they, they can't... Uh, you know, throw someone out over the heebie-jeebies that the guy pays his rent. And if they threw everyone out because of the heebie-jeebies, <laughs> they'd have no clients, no customers, because everyone there's kind of a weirdo. He's like, he's got dead eyes. <laughs> um, and so we get this really intense shot of him delivering him his bill. 
Um, and, you know, we've been sort of leading up this whole episode thinking that there's some kind of weird monster or something that's been living there that's been infecting the whole place. And, but, um, Miss Lead, it's Angel is the person who gives him the heebie-jeebies. Plot twist! So, granted, he does have his kind of, uh, um, fascism light haircut going on in this episode. <laughs> and... By comparison to how much he talked in the past, he is a chatterbox in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is where we get the the shot of, like, gay people saying goodbye to each other in the hallway. They're, like, sneaking around. Yeah. A a famous actor who probably is supposed to be either uh, Rock Hudson or Cary Grant stand-in. You know, analog is... uh, saying goodbye to was clearly uh, a lover even though they're not being like actually you know kissing on each other or anything like that he's just like straightening his collar and like flattening his hair it's very clear what's going on um and then of course this is the part when we get the background of the communism witch hunts um there might be a scene in the present between then and this one because it goes to commercial break after it reveals Angel. I don't, I don't know if I just didn't write any notes down or if it goes back. It's, it comes back from commercial to the past. But my next note is about you know the background of the communism witch hunts and um, how you know the film crew, the film people, of course, standing around and chatting about Hollywood. And they say to this one actress who uh, is hinted at meets producers sexually there in order to get roles, that that's how Lana Turner got started. And then this has the, um, the moment that is, uh, seems kind of like a throwaway moment at first, but it's actually sort of foreshadowing for what the episode is really going to be about, where, um, the, even though he's been complaining about needing more money in an earlier scene, the manager turns away a black family saying that there are no vacancies yep. at this hotel for black people. He doesn't he's say like, for the black sign people, is mistaken. that's obviously what's happening. Um, and something that I thought was sort of interesting continuity note is that at this point in his post insoling that Angel is not drinking from humans, but he is still drinking human blood. Right. He's not, he hasn't switched to pig's blood or, or um, rat's blood, as will be the case for many years before he meets Wheeler the demon, who puts him on his uh, path again in the 90s when he introduces him to Buffy via stalking. Um, and here is where sort of the plot kicks off. Angel is in his room, when, or going, is walking back to his room after going to get some ice. And there's a guy snooping around, and um, Angel goes back into his room, and there's a woman just in his room, like fluffing his pillows or whatever. And she's like, "Sorry, I'm not done cleaning yet. I'm just the maid." And he's like. You're, he's like, the maid was here an hour ago. Also, you're the wrong color. Another ironic remark in context of the full episode. Right. Um, and she's like, I'm sorry. Um, my boyfriend is in a mood right now. And he gets really 
jealous and I'm just trying to avoid him and Angel, you know, is not obviously the protector hero that he is in the present day and so he's just basically standoffish and rude and he's like maybe you shouldn't go wandering into other men's rooms then. Yeah, he ends up um, the, the supposed boyfriend tries to pick the lock and tries to force his way into the room and Angel lets him get a little way through the room and then just bops the door in his face really hard and then yeah, the woman comes out and he like shuts her off too yeah he opens like when he hears the lock being picked he opens the door in order to sort of embarrass the guy um and then he's like uh i'm pretty sure that woman is in there who i'm looking for and he's like i don't want any trouble and he flashes uh his gun to intimidate angel and angel's like uh, yeah, he's like, I don't want any trouble, and so he o- pretends like he's opening the door to let the guy in, and as soon as the guy takes a s- step in, he slams the door back into his face, and takes his gun, and kicks him out of the room, and, uh, the woman is like, oh gosh, wow, that's just, oh gosh, I mean, that was, and then he slams the door in her <laughs> face, too. Violence didn't ever solve anything. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we get more shots of the empty hotel in the present day uh, with all its cobwebs and things like that to make it seem, you know, creepy and unsettling. And then Wesley and Cordelia find that the bellhop took a shotgun and just went around and killed all the guests one morning. Mm-hmm. Along with a history of murders and suicides and strange activity that's uh, been happening in the hotel and uh, you know they're putting all these pieces together and uh, Cordelia is like did you notice that we have no idea why we're doing this um, <laughs> and with her old clamshell Mac laptop yeah and Wesley you know tries to momentarily be like well I think once we get all these pieces together it'll be, no I, that did a, that was clear to me that we have no <laughs> idea why we're doing this um, <laughs> and then uh, Cordelia is like oh maybe this is why we're doing it because one of the pictures has Angel in the background um, and I agree with Cordy that it's a super terrible picture of him <laughs> also this is something I mean it's been presented in the show uh, you know, lampshaded in the show, but like cameras usually involve mirrors of some type to take pictures. So why do vampires show up in them? The light is exposed directly to the film. The light um, doesn't bounce off of the mirror to get onto the film. Some cameras, the, the light the doesn't bounce off of up. a mirror. But some cameras do involve mirrors. <laughs> I know Fair there enough. existed uh, hand cameras in the 50s where the mirror flips up mm-hmm. so I guess the guy wouldn't have been able to see Angel in the picture because he, when you look through the viewfinder you're looking at a mirror mm-hmm. that would have been weird for that <laughs> picture taker <laughs> to be like ah here's a picture of this scene in the 50s and takes it and then he gets it exposed and he's like that person wasn't there when I took this picture. <laughs> um, 
And then we go back to the past again, and my next note is uh, I really like that whoop-dee-doo song where the guy who we saw a bit of earlier and was acting kind of weird, he was just like talking to the wall as Angel got his bucket of ice. Now he's alone in his room and he's talking to himself again and he's like, okay, I understand. He's like, oh, everything sounds good. And then he picks up a pillow and he picks up a gun and he points it to his head and uh, the song gets really loud and then it cuts to Angel's bedroom and we hear a muffled shot as the song continues to play. Angel's kind of like, meh. Yeah. Like, he's affected in, like, the least affected way. Where he's like, I wish that hadn't happened, but not because I care about this person. He's like, just because it's kind of a bother. (laughs) Um, Yeah. um, And I also read... mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I also wrote down another blood continuity thing is that apparently he got the ice to chill the blood in, and I was, even though it's not explained, I was wondering if maybe he was drinking cold blood because it might help quell the desire to drink it from humans. Like, drinking it cold is, Hmm. you know, kind of like the e-cigarette of uh, the vampire (laughs) world, and that are like, you still get some of the experience, but it's different enough from the cigarette experience that it can help you reduce the, you know, <laughs> cravings that are associated with some of the habitation of it. <laughs> I assumed it was for coagulation. Maybe. There's a record that someone put out that has blood in the center. Have you heard about this? No. Like, instead of the plastic covering in the very center that you put against, you know, it's it's actually filled with blood right there, and you have to keep it in the refrigerator so it doesn't co- coagulate. Um... In college, and, um, well, an undergraduate, a friend told me about a, a artist, a sculptor, who made a mold of his face out of his own blood. Like, nice. just took his, you know, every month, took a little bit of his blood out until he had enough to, to make a whole face mold. And yeah, when you wanted to see it, you had to basically go into a freezer because otherwise it would, you know, be destroyed. Um, normally in shows, I really dislike the whispering that signifies paranoia, but I really liked it in this episode. I don't yeah, know what even they the, did differently. The music trick is one that's fairly rote as well, like, you know, putting like a pretty happy, like upbeat song against like a uh, very disturbing sequence and, you know, heightening the emotions through counterpoint. Um, but it's just a really good song choice so it it works sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel to make something good honestly like sometimes old standards just work even like looking at the clothes on this episode reminds me of the smell of vintage clothes like this episode is just really good mm-hmm. about that kind of thing yeah it's very textual it's if you're the type of person who's really into film and video think you watch something like this and you definitely feel immersed in a way in which sometimes you don't there's definitely like and I don't you know it's not something that you can sort of logistically point to exactly what the difference is but there's definitely sometimes where you watch something that's supposed to take place in the past and it just feels like people playing dress up yeah you're just like ah this is very realistic but I'm not at all invested 
and this actually being from the time period, it just feels like people having the extremely expensive cosplay fun. Yeah, definitely. And you see a lot of that too. You you can see the current era that the film was made in the choices they make in the dress from the past. You know what I mean? It's like the difference between a movie mm-hmm. from the 80s that's about the 50s versus a movie from the, the, the 90s that's about the 50s. Um, and then we move on to the scene where the bellhop and the manager of the hotel uh, have found out about the man who committed suicide and uh, there's a fairly um, funny joke where um, the manager asks if anyone has touched anything and the bellhop implies that of course not because the maid never cleans anything Um, you know he's like He's like, only Rosa's been here, and she locked the door behind her, and, you know, Rosa wouldn't, doesn't touch anything when people haven't killed themselves. Um, you know, and the we get, like, apparently this has happened before, and the bellhop is, you know, fairly cynical, and, uh, not, like, um, doesn't seem particularly concerned about it, it's just sort of talking about this guy compared to other people who committed suicide and is like so do you want me to call the people to clean up the hotel or you want me to call the cops first and the manager hearing that whispering voice that we just mentioned is like uh, convinced to not call the cops and to cover it up because people know that there have been three suicides in whatever a month or however long and it's like maybe they won't want to come to the hotel anymore And he tells them to uh, dispose of the body. Chop it up and put it in the freezer. Well, he just said put it in the freezer. Frank chopped yeah. it up on his own. Yeah. And I don't think he, uh, I don't think he needed any whispering for that. I think he was just doing his job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, in any situation where kind of a mob happens there's going to be a spectrum of different people participating and I think just like the military some people are doing it just because you know it's there and some people are doing it because um, they're influenced by the actions of others and some people are just looking for a convenient excuse to um, satisfy the gross feelings that they've always had and it's like here's a societally acceptable way to murder people and that's something that I've always wanted to do. Pretty much. Um, and the bellhop probably falls into that category. So in season seven of um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's a scene where Buffy is trying to find out where Spike has been and she goes to a club and asks the bouncer if he's seen him and um, she starts describing him and he's like, the guy, he's like, says something about, you know, basically along the lines of the guy who really wants to be yeah. Billy Idol and Buffy makes the joke like, uh, or Buffy makes the comments like, actually Billy Idol still is, and she's like, never mind, don't worry about it. Um, you know, implying something that is kind of a running gag through all the shows that like vampires are actually like at these crucial like aesthetic moments in history like inspiring right important people like 
with how to you know do their art and live their life and stuff like this and this is an even more subtle continuation of that idea than that season seven one where this is supposed to take place in the early 50s and Angel is dressed exactly like James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause in this scene and they're in front of the um, extremely well-known planetarium that is uh, the setting for the final scene of Rebel Without a Cause. That's so hilarious. There's I didn't no catch way that. this is unintentional. I was just like, yeah, 50s clothes. Yeah, it's way, it's way more subtle than, um, but it's like, to me, the reason why it especially stands out is because Angel is so normally wearing, you know, white, black, gray. To like, see him wear red, I was like, <laughs> Oh, this is really surprising. And I was like, oh, right, it's the Rebel Without a Cause jacket. Uh, so that scene that um, with that Rebel Without a Cause look is introduced begins in uh, one of those funny television ways where Angel is, I believe he's smoking in front of the planetarium, yes. you know, standing out there looking cool. And it turns out the woman is there to see the show, and she walks up to him, and the first thing she says to him is, the world ends in two minutes. Very TV moment, or just non-real-life moment of someone walking up to someone else and not saying hello. Just saying, like, very, you know, cool, Very strange thing, yeah. Comment. <laughs> This whole scene was lost on me because I did not get the parallel. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is anyone talking about in this scene? The only thing I was thinking about in this scene is that it was very pretty. And then also that although vampires don't need to inhale, obviously they can. Mm -hmm. Which is how they smoke. Do you think they uh, get a nicotine rush? Um, well, they get... Uh they can get drunk, but apparently they have a superhuman constitution. So, like, it takes a lot more alcohol to get them drunk than, you know, most humans. So, I imagine, unless they're doing something to the cigarettes, no. Just because the amount of nicotine in a cigarette probably isn't enough to affect them. So, unless they're, like, spiking to, them somehow. Just wants to look cool. Yeah. I mean, I know for sure that's true of Spike, that that's the reason why he smokes, <laughs> isn't it? It's because it's associated with that whole image that he's trying to project. So what is she referring to when she says the world's about to end? Because Angel seems to know. The show that she's going to go see in the planetarium. Oh, uh, I didn't know if she was referring to like an... Sort of the opposite of the, opposite of the right. Big Bang. Like a presentation by the planetarium, not an actual astrological event. Wait, astronomical yeah. event. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. It could be both. We always we know that Mercury in retrograde is when the universe will explode. And then um, he asked her about her boyfriend, and she's like, "What? Oh no!" <laughs> she seems extremely unconcerned. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, he knew the whole time that it was a detective looking for her. And so he, you know, sort of subtly calls her out about it. And then they talk about the man who committed suicide and getting out of the hotel. And um, she's, she says, uh, um, 
that she couldn't imagine killing herself like that, you know, surrounded by that ugly wallpaper or something like that. And Angel suggests maybe it was the wallpaper that drove him <laughs> into it. <laughs> uh, probably, right? And uh, she says something about, um, you know, he seemed fairly normal when he first got there. I wonder what he was hiding. And uh, Angel states plainly that everyone at this hotel's got something to hide. Um. I think I must have not taken any notes on a scene or two here because, like, it. My next note is about her confession about um, her mixed heritage. Yeah. I think the only thing in between there is a flash forward to current day and all the current day stuff in this episode feels really forgettable. But in the current day, Wes and Cordelia are making like a serial killer wall, but for the hotel, Mm -hmm. they're like trying to organize all the information on the deaths. And is this the point at which Angel shows up and tells them that it's, no, that's, that's later. Nope. Much later. Tells them it's a Thessalic demon. Nope. They just find out that the bellhop that eventually ended up being convicted. Yeah, they're organizing the things by there. years, and I think they're having an argument over which year, like, certain th- things go into which cup. Yeah. Um, then eventually we get back to Angel's bedroom, where... This woman confesses that um, she stole some money from a bank that she worked at, and the reason why she stole the money was because she was angry at them for firing her, and the reason why she was angry at them for firing her was because they found out that she has black heritage, um, and that she's been passing since she was 15 years old, she says, um, and that when someone, I don't remember if they said who, but when someone tells her a secret to her fiance and to her work, they both abandoned her and out of frustration and sadness and anxiety she responds by stealing a bunch of money from the bank yeah definitely have you ever read she's a, mm-hmm. I was going to say she's a pretty decent actress in my opinion I like her performance in this but one of my small complaints would be that this woman is not that thing right and that representationalism is important i mean i looked up her um ethnicity because i was curious you know and i wanted to make sure about that comment also and she is someone who is of mixed descent who is obviously white passing because she's uh, chinese as well as Mm. italian um so, like, she still has that experience, so it's not as bad as if it had just been, like... Hey, it froze up. But, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It would have been better if they had gotten an actual mixed person who was the same as it is in the script. It's, yeah. <laughs> and all Funny I was story. saying is that it's not, like, um, casting you know, Yul Brenner as the pharaoh of Egypt in the right. it. It's like, there's no real connection whatsoever. It's like a Chinese woman who is 
you know, based on her look in this episode, who could almost certainly pass for white, but has like a Chinese background, would have some of the same experiences. Um, yeah. And therefore, could tap into that. But I do think it would be better if they had gotten an actress who was black, who was racially and culturally black. Um, two things about that. One is that it reminded me of the novel The Human Stain, which is about a kid who passes for white since he's little and then ends up being... I think he ends up being taken or disciplined for racism towards some of his black students as a professor later in his life. Um, and the second thing it reminded me of, when she started saying, oh, they found out about me, I was like, oh my god, she's trans. And then I was like, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> That would be what she would be today. <laughs> Wait, this is an episode yeah. from 2000? <laughs> they would have just, even if, like, the episode somehow made it to the air, they would have just yanked <laughs> it from the air while it was playing. Uh, <laughs> the openly trans laughter. character in 2000? No. Um, but, she has a relatable experience to that she says that she you know even though obviously she is her own individual person with you know uh personal experience she says i feel like i'm not one thing or the other um and that makes me nothing and angel says i know what that's like and a lot of times when they try to bring thematic elements home to roost with other characters it feels like a stretch or like the character has to talk in such a personally vague way mm -hmm. in order for it to be more widely applicable but I think that this one works when they do it and it makes sense why Angel would relate to our situation um and uh I do also think, even though it's not at all explicit at this, that this is a continuation of something from season one, Angel, which is that um, he does sometimes become interested in cases because there's like a little bit of an attraction there. Like he plays it pretty cool, but I think he likes her. <laughs> Maybe, I didn't pick up on that. He definitely does though. So yeah, I was saying uh, in the Buffyverse, the fact that vampires for human that they have this ability to switch between their vampiric face and a human facade is something that to this point has always been played as dangerous or you know mysterious or sexy you know um, and this is the first time that it's played as kind of sad uh, you know played in the way in which I interpret Superman as here's someone that's not human that maybe would really like to fit into human society and looks like a human but doesn't feel like one feels like that they're putting on a show yeah i feel like that's a good callback to how he was talking about working out in the last episode too like this is stuff that's on angel's mind um And she, you know, she is wondering how to get out of her situation. 
and she says like you know if the money just showed up on their doorstep I never wanted it anyway and I haven't spent any of it do you think they would just forgive forget it there is such a thing as forgiveness right and Angel looks at her very meaningfully because this is essentially his dilemma or the dilemma of the show or his hope right his goal is the idea that he could be forgiven for the mistakes that he feels like he's made. Do you think, is this the first person that he's ever helped, or? Um, literally, no. Um, but it might be the first person that he has. I, I don't know exactly how to put it. There's a, a flashback episode later in season two where there's a period after he's reinsold where he tries to, you know, pretend like nothing is wrong and he meets up with Darla and he um, tries to be part of the vampire gang and he um, comes across like some missionaries uh, and, you know, uh, leads Darla mm-hmm. away from them. So he obviously helps them not be eaten by Darla and she finds out about it later and brings the baby to Angel and tries to force him to eat the baby so that to prove that he's still, you know, vamp a vampire and then he saves that baby. But this is feels, you know, a very different circumstance from that because that's like a situation where like it's not so much that he, you know, saved that baby, like in the sense that like it's comparable to you know, if you see someone about to hit, get hit by a car, and you're like, yo, like, get out of the way. Like, that's a very different thing from, like, someone telling you that they have a problem, and you taking steps to, like, help them solve it. <laughs> right. It's like the personal connection. Yeah. Um, they go down into the basement at this point, right? Yeah, they, they go to the temporarily hide the money. Well, Angel yeah. goes down to the basement. And they hear the crazy whispering again. And she's like, oh, there's going to be cops all over the place. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no, it was a suicide. She's like, well, there's still going to be cops. Yeah. She's like, are you sure it was a suicide? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, this is when Angel starts to suspect that maybe there might be something supernatural going on. Um, I can't. And she starts hearing the whispering, too, at this point. Yeah. I believe everyone in the hotel is hearing the whispering. Except for Angel seems to be immune. I feel like he hears it, but maybe he's already in that headspace, so it doesn't affect him. He definitely hears it. Yeah. But then he doesn't do anything differently. Yeah. I think there's there's a later episode where he says that, like, being a vampire has freed him of certain, like, types of emotions, and that might be one of them. Like, the paranoia doesn't, I mean... You, True. It's not like we get the wide, ex, the wide vampire experience, but it's not something that we ever see any of the vampires like particularly experience. Like, you know, right? There's a certain um, confidence that seems to come with being a vampire. Goes with their cool image. That's why yeah. they gotta smoke. Um, in the in the present day here, they made a joke which I don't really like. Where they're trying to search for a demon, and Wesley's like, oh, this is impossible. And Cordy's like, it's a Thessalac demon. And he was like, what? 
But then it turned out that Angel had given her the answer over the phone. Yeah. Angel called me. Yep. And then we cut back to the past where past Angel, 50s Angel, is um, doing the research himself and to try to find out how to uh, destroy the Thessalic demon. And he goes to the local, the resident, you know, spooky books expert in LA, a man named Denver. Proto Wesley. <laughs> yeah, he's beat Nick Wesley. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, Angel walks in and he says, you Denver? Denver goes, no other cat but me. <laughs> and uh, Denver seems like he's going to help Angel, but it's a ploy. He's, he, uh, despite being a human, can tell that Angel is a vampire somehow. Maybe he recognizes him from one of his books, since Angel would have been fairly famous at this point right. still. Um, and so he he's like, hey, check out this book, but it's the Bible. <laughs> so it burns Angel's <laughs> hands and uh, he grabs his cross and he threatens that he's going to put a cot in the back of the store so the vampires stop trying to come in. <laughs> Which um, is actually a pretty good pretty good defense mechanism. Yeah, my thought about, like, as soon as he said that, it reverberated throughout the whole show and I was like, why don't magic box owners do that? <laughs> like, for real? <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, but Angel is not easily, uh, distracted from his quest and just knocks the cross out of the guy's hand. <laughs> um, I thought it was, and tells oh, him, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I thought it was hilarious you, when the guy was like, so how old were you when you were made? Just, uh, my age? <laughs> He's like, you, you, he's like, how old are you? And he's like, just north of 30. And Angel goes, no. <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, probably actually younger than how old David Boreanaz yes. would have been. Even though he time. was ostensibly made when he was, what, 19? No, he's supposed to be in his late 20s. Oh, really? Like, even, even, uh, like maybe you could say he's like 25 the actor was definitely like 27 or 28 when he plays the role in year one of Buffy so this is four years later so he's probably like 31 at this point um and yeah like even it's something that we've talked about before on Definitely Doomed that even if it was just if you took out the whole vampire angle that the angel buffy relationship is still creepy because uh he's like 10 years older than her just in comparison to right. when he was made <laughs> and what age she is yeah that was never my favorite relationship no i feel like Sometimes I feel like it's a stretch, and sometimes I feel like it's actually part of the show calling out the weirdness of mm. that relationship uh, in both series, but sometimes I think it's something that I wish were happening. I mean, I know that for sure they're, like, fully invested in that relationship for most of the first two seasons. Um, so it's definitely, even if it is there, it's something that they came to gradually, where I feel like that's something you should have felt... <laughs> pretty much right off the bat it's yes. understandably kind of weird and the fact that they have like Wesley and Cordelia attracted to each other in season 3 just again reiterates that they don't think of 
that is being right. as weird as they should. Or as sexist or as, you know. Right, like, I mean, upsetting. a teacher with a high school student is never, never good times. I like the trio of mis- murder mystery guys at the hotel. It's an actor, a screenwriter, and a prostitute. And they're, like, spinning themselves up into this big story. <laughs> yeah. Um, is she a sex worker or is she an actress who got her start in She is a sex worker. Sleeping with people. They say that films? she's a, what's, okay. a call girl? There's a woman that runs remember. off screen at the very beginning. And someone calls out after her. What are you doing? That's how Lana Turner got started or whatever. And I assume she was the ingenue. Yeah. And then the one actually living at the hotel, I think, is a call girl. But I don't. It, it's really ambiguous. Um. So Angel learns how to, uh, rate like the basically the the Thessalic demon is uh, incorporeal except for. Uh, two possibilities. One is after a large meal for the Thessalac demon, which is essentially it feeds off of people's paranoia, so if a very paranoid, like fear-worthy event were to happen, um, it would take corporeal form, and then the other possibility is raising it. So Angel looks up the raising ritual and is headed back to the hotel to raise it, and then of course cut to the present. where they're um, going to raise the demon now in the present, and uh, Wesley and Gunn are very petty and <laughs> uh, older, younger sibling right. with each other. Like Wesley is very uh, meticulous and fussy, and is asking for you know some spell ingredient or something, and gun doesn't like the way that he's being addressed so he just tosses it in Wesley's direction and uh Angel is like guys whatever the demon is saying to you just ignore it it's like it's not it's just trying to infect your minds and then Cordelia's like they were like this all the way in the car <laughs> over and I'm just like oh <laughs> yeah Wesley's reaction to this demon is some of the best some of the best <laughs> It's a good note. It's, it's, it's a good very note to good. end on. Um, they kind of start layering past and present a little thicker here, which I think works very well. Yeah. It really, like you said earlier, yeah. it's up the tension. So they're in the present. They're, you know, trying to um, uh, raise the demon. And then in the past, Angel comes back to the hotel and discovers that the woman... Uh, that the detective has caught the woman and that the, you know, the whole, like, sort of like all of the guests that we've met so far are like, you know, you're going to bring the police down on all of us. It's like you're going to ruin all of our lives. So I could get her out of here. Um, and they're like, maybe uh, the man who lived on this hallway found out about your robbery and you killed him to, um, you know, to cover it up. And uh, she sees Angel. And she's, you know, trying to get the attention off of her. Screams, it wasn't me, it was him. 
he uh he's got blood in his room he's a monster yep. everyone's pulling at her and you think the angel's gonna run up and pull her out of there which she probably would have done eventually maybe i don't know that's a good mm -hmm. question but then she's like it was him and uh the i mean i think there's probably a case to be made that angel could have taken all of those people although i mean they um they knock him out at this point um and they decide that they're going to have mob justice and this would be another one of my i wouldn't call it a small complaint i feel like it's a pretty major complaint that um that maybe i would say i wish bothered me more like it bothers me more on an intellectual level than an emotional level which is that they lynch angel which um, is probably what they would have done to her that is an extremely potent historical image and i feel like drawing the comparison with angel to the black experience at that point is too strong a little much that they haven't they haven't garnered uh they haven't made me feel like that's an okay jump to make like the kind of superficial comparison that they made earlier that's fine but in this case it feels more along the lines of co-opting where it's taking someone else's powerful painful imagery and just sort of utilizing it for your show for an emotional response in a way that doesn't feel totally respectful to the actual history of it it's a pretty shocking image also it's really obvious that angel is a dummy which is a little disappointing like when they like they put the noose around him and then like kind of they momentarily like hide him under the like i don't know what you would call it but they're on like a balcony looking over the lobby balustrade yeah, they like hide him so you can't see him from front of the camera and then they really like they throw a dummy <laughs> <laughs> over the side and, like you can tell by its weight and other things that it's definitely a dummy so back in the day witch burnings hangings boiling in oil these were like big events and people attended them that didn't have any stake in the event just for the entertainment and i they feel sure like did yeah i feel like that was the truly shocking thing about this this scene because we haven't seen anything like that in the area where we've lived you know i've never seen anything like that and so it just makes it a little more real um thinking about how lynchings must have been back in the day mm -hmm. you could say that there's uh not as i don't know visceral version of that now with the proliferation of a certain type of video in the past couple of years yeah i mean obviously a lot of people are disturbed by those videos and uh you know have chosen to stop watching them or have disassociated but there has to be a certain segment of the population who watches them with sort of a weird glee oh yeah oh yeah and if i ever find out that someone i know watches that type of video i actually don't know them anymore <laughs> which is probably a safe move i wrote down that the southern accent for the thessalic demon is a really nice touch good touch good touch although 
I was a little sad that it was a black southern accent. Well, it's Cajun. Cajun? Yeah. It's a it's a Cajun accent. He definitely read black which, to me. Um, well, I looked up the actor and he's not hmm. black because I guess I felt like somewhat the same. Um, and he's he's a white actor. Uh, but yeah, it's a nice touch having like the big beefy voice after we've been hearing all these whispers. Um, and yeah, I mean, Cajun is an accent that is a mix, essentially, of French and uh, black accent. So, like, that's where Cajun comes from. It's not a white right. accent. Um, so I have kind of a beef with this episode. Um, so towards, at the very end, mm -hmm. we see that in the past, Angel wakes up from his hanging and the demon has become corporeal because he's fed so much. And he's like taunting Angel. Yeah. Do you have a good quote for that? Because I don't really remember what they said. Um... The angel, I mean, the demon is, you know, saying like, uh, you know, he's like, uh, he's like, I couldn't eat another bite after a meal that big, you know, I'm totally stuffed. And he's like, and the woman was the tastiest morsel of all. And the reason is because she, uh, actually did believe that angel was going to help her. And he's like, that's the, he's like, that's the best part is you reached her. You gave her hope. You restored her faith in humanity. That's why she was so amazing when she turned on him. And then um, I don't remember exactly how it's led to the point, but basically the demon comes to uh, the place where he's like, so what are you going to do now, vampire hero? And Angel says, take them all and walks out of the hotel, leaving them all to their paranoid fates, the fates that we will find out or found out in the earlier scenes that mostly involve suicides and murder. And then 20, 20 years later, the bellhop kills everyone. I don't think it's that long later, but yeah. He said it was 72, right? I don't know. Hmm, I don't remember. Uh, so my thought was even if Angel stayed, there's nothing he could have done. So I'm glad they don't try to play the guilt up. Like, it's obvious Angel's doing this to make up for what he did in the past, but I'm glad they don't play it up any more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the Thessalic demon appears, he could have just murdered him mm. <laughs> right in that moment. I guess that's true. He didn't know if he could, if he had the physical power to even, to murder it. I yeah. guess he could have attacked it. Yeah. Um... And it's obviously that it, Angel is, you know, sort of the mirror image of the woman in this point, and that he's been profoundly hurt by her betrayal, and that the reason why he is so hurt and acts this way is because she has done the same for him. Right. He's He wants to be part of humanity again in a way in which he hasn't for years. And my assumption, although it's not 100% clear with Angel's timeline, is that this sort of incident leads to his living in sewers and the bottom of boats and 
basically being like a homeless rat eating vampire at this point because he wants to remove himself from humanity right. completely. And so in the present day, they raise the demon. <laughs> what is it that he says to Wes? He says that, um, uh, he, well, he's taunting Angel again, and he says that he's brought him some more tasty morsels to eat. And then he looks at Wesley and he goes, especially this one. <laughs> and Wes is like, what's that supposed to mean? Um, Ugh, yeah. And then we get the worst. The worst. This is my least favorite scene. When he electrocutes him? <laughs> I know that's not what you meant, but I wanted to nope. play this again. So, you know, the the old standard when it comes to big beasties that have to be destroyed. Woo! Electrocute him. So, Angel ties its tentacle to, like, a circuit breaker board and fries it. And um, then... He heads up uh, the demon, you know, like Angel said that he's not going to, um, you know, destroy any more people's lives. And uh, the demon basically hints that he's been feeding off the same person for years. And so Angel goes upstairs and finds that the woman has been, I'm not exactly sure how, maybe mystically or maybe the... <laughs> Paranoid demon has like the ability to like place phone calls and just orders delivery for her all the time. She's been <laughs> like, living there delivery. that whole time. Uh, what a horrible life. Yeah. Because she's too afraid to go out into the real world. And yeah, this scene is definitely Ugh. a little over the top, but it works for it. me like I hate pretty it. hard. Like, I mean, I've been crying at almost anything <laughs> me like, too. this month that I watched. Like, I saw a bad, I saw bad moms, and like, this has like the most manipulative, unearned, like <laughs> emotional moments in it, where like, you know, there'll be a scene of like the moms like pretty viciously making fun of their children, and but then the scene will end with like, but I love my kids so much, and like I would start to like tear up at it, and I would be like, no, buddy, do not do this. Like, um, this is okay. not. This is not an appropriate response True to stories. this True stories. I started moment. ugly crying at an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> but this this scene did not make me cry. But I feel okay this with scene, my crying. No, this scene did not make me cry. Scene. It made me super angry because she never got any <laughs> redemption. Like, it was all about Angel's redemption in the end even though it was supposed to be about her story and him helping her and coming around. Wait, how did she not get redemption? She gets to apologize to the person that she thought she murdered. Like, no, she gets she... to die. She gets to have a horrible life and then die. She doesn't, re real redemption for her would have been walking out of there, you know, like being forgiven and then being like, oh, I'm super old, but the world's so cool now. <laughs> you know, like racism is still a thing, but not as much. I mean, I've, I don't know. I disagree with you, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with that last part that like her experiencing a less racist world is something that could be a really interesting scene, but I don't know if the, an episode of a television show has the ability to capture 
what would have to be a fairly nuanced well i was just expecting <laughs> her to like walk out of the hotel and then be like oh who is this but no she was just like oh let me go die um but i feel like that this scene is sort of i mean i see what you're saying with it sort of being for angel in the sense that this feels like an extremely compressed version of sort of what angel wants like he wants to face people who he's done bad things to and get forgiveness from them and then he more wants to metaphorically die rather than literally die (laughs) but to just like be reborn as something new and even though i don't like this actress nearly as much as the one who plays the younger version of her and i'm glad in a later episode when they decide to bring the character of Denver back that they don't cast a different actor to play Denver that they just use makeup to make him look older which I think wish they had done yeah me too for this Um, but some of the lines in my opinion are just so perfect that even a sort of mediocre actress delivers them in a way that just really hurts me like when she asks Angel if she's safe and like all that that could imply because not just like the paranoia demon but just like her whole life has been about hiding an important part of herself also it's super well lit (laughs) don't try to tempt me with that well lit nonsense still terrible (laughs) with just like a little bit of like sad sunlight coming through the window somewhere. Chiroscuro is off the charts. Um, it reminds me of, I can't remember exactly the situation, but there's a scene in uh, Legend of Zelda, <laughs> a Link to the Past, that when I was a kid used to make <laughs> me cry, where like, it doesn't matter like how long you take to like do this mission but basically like you um lead this young woman out of the dark world but it's to die like it's she she can't survive because she's been in the dark world oh, wow. for too long and as it always made me sad and this scene kind of reminds me of that also in the lighting as well because i believe that also took place in a dark room with like one (laughs) sad bit of sunlight coming through so after he comes back downstairs comma making no we get the the best scene even though he doesn't say anything about there being a body (laughs) like i assume he takes care of it later instead of waiting for cordy to find it Mm? hopefully (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's a prank that he pulls on her he's like i know you, he's like you know where it'd be a good a good office for you room 238 <laughs> anyways <laughs> <Ha>! <laughs> but yeah he walks downstairs and wesley calls him over and he's like uh he's like you've done a good thing here but he's like but you don't find me to be paranoid do you angel and then <laughs> he's like He's like, I don't, I'm not paranoid. He's like, most <laughs> people have been saying it behind my back. <laughs> and the others are just like, ugh. <laughs> and then, like, cuts to a wider shot and, and kind of a 
funny callback. Uh, Gunn says that he'll be glad to be get out of there because the place gives him the heebie-jeebies, which is, you know, what the bellhop said about Angel earlier. And Or no, uh, Cordelia says he yeah. gives her the heebie-jeebies, and Gunn says that it also has kind of a funky odor. And uh, Angel says, we're moving and in. Cordy's like, I love it. A couple of throw pillows. Uh, It'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Not totally believably, but immediately changes her opinion on the place. And uh, Wes is like, you know, sit, you know, basically sort of summing up both the importance of history and, of course, Angel's hope of how history can be changed. When Wesley says, Shirley, you must recognize that this is a house of evil. And Angel says, not anymore, which is, of course true of angel it's like himself. what he first did for faith now he's doing for a building <laughs> <laughs> and that that's why he wants to work out of there is because it's a physical representation of his own desire and uh Angel, as we've discussed before, loves poetry and reading, and the symbolism yes. would totally work for his personality. He'd be way into it. And then uh, when Angel says, not anymore, and <laughs> Wesley leans over to him and he goes, you don't find me to be especially paranoid, do you? <laughs> and Angel goes, not especially. <laughs> that's the end of the episode. <laughs> Very funny moments from Wesley Wyndham Price at the end there. Good episode, I liked it. Double thumbs up. Hmm. I thought I pulled up the page with the facts on it, but I guess I closed it at some point. Boo. Way to fail, Ribbon. Oh, this dead air that needs to be cut out, unlike the other dead air. Um, this is another episode by writer Tim Minear that explores Angel's background. He's cynical, I don't get involved guy, and I thought that was a very interesting place to be, says Minear. Although he does reach out to help someone in this episode, it doesn't take much to push him out of that light. I don't know if them mobbing <laughs> against him and hanging him not much be considered not much but fair enough <laughs> the first sign of, of something bad going down he just totally drops everything and leaves the case um when fans point out that the flashback scene in Buffy in which Angel's living on the streets of New York City, Minear deflects the accusation of retconning by saying, I don't believe he was thrown out of that room in Romania by Darwa in 1898 and has been on the street ever since. In the 1950s, that was the beginning of his descent into the streets, which um, might have ended in the 70s in a different flashback with Angel where uh, we find that he, um, Angel with a soul, that he sees a man get murdered and because he dies in front yeah. of him he just drinks him he doesn't you know try to help really 
The episode introduces the Hyperion Hotel, which will be Angel's main set until the end of Season 4. Production designer Stuart Blatt explains that after blowing up Angel's cramped office in Season 1 finale, he had the opportunity to create a bigger, more film-friendly set that the crew and cameras could move through freely. Creator Joss Whedon suggested an abandoned hotel, something similar to the hotel in Coen Brothers' Barton Fink. The exterior shots of the Hyperion are of a historical building on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles called the Los Altos Hotel and Apartments, which Blatt had previously used in the yes. episode I Fall to Pieces. The Los Altos was home to many Hollywood celebrities, including Betty Davis, Mae West, and William Randolph Hearst before the Great Depression. Similar to the fictional history of the Hyperion featured in the episode, Blatt says the front doors of the Hyperion are exact duplicates of those of the Los Altos, and the back garden closely resembles the back garden in the apartments, which allows the crew to film the characters entering and exiting the building hmm. on location. Then we cut to the interior. Nighttime scenes between Angel and Judy filmed location on Griffith Park Observatory. The close-up of the article about Judy shows the first paragraph is about Judy, while the rest of the article contains generic sentences not specific to any event and appear to repeat. (laughs) Woman steals money. Lorem ipsum. Tim Minear often gets asked what Angel did with the money, the stolen money that he recovers from the hiding place in the basement. Minear says, as far as he is concerned, Angel did not keep the money or use it to buy the hotel. That he sends it back nice. to the bank I always, in Salina, Kansas. That's weird. Which, like, <laughs> I mean, fair, but like, so if you steal ten thousand dollars in 1951 and then send it. Back the exact same ten thousand dollars in two thousand and one. Guess what? It's worth like half as much or less. <laughs> so you've essentially stolen like half of yeah, the value I from assumed. them. But I mean, I guess it's better I than nothing. He just kept it and used it to buy the hotel. Because otherwise, where in the world is their money coming from? The off-screen clients. Um. Well. Uh, What's his name? The rich oh, guy obviously right. paid them a lot of money, and he he comes back in the next in either the next episode or the one after that to even discuss money with them, as well. Um, so an angel investor. But I think angel there's like investor. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's an implication in season one, especially that Angel has some wealth that he's acquired simply due to being really old. Which is old, a weird thought because I don't think it works that way. He's been living in an alley. <laughs> no, it's true. Plenty of people plenty of people yeah. lose money over time, but how is he even affording to live in this hotel? He can't work. Yeah. But like if he was thoughtful as a vampire and cared about money really in like the 1700s or whatever, he could just literally just grab items and put them in a safe place and then take them out 200 years later and they would be worth a lot of money. Maybe that's what he did. Antiquities dealing. Yeah. Um, Cordelia and Wesley mentioned the hotel's bellhop was named Frank Gilnitz. Gilnitz is a name that was often used for incidental or unseen characters on X-Files. Uh, it became a running joke on that show. The name was an amalgam of the names of longtime X-Files writers John Sheban, Vince Gilligan, and Frank Spotnitz. 
Uh, when Angel enters the store, the shopkeeper throws a Bible at him, and when Angel catches it, it burns him. This is the first instance where it is shown that Bibles are harmful to vampires. Angel's room number in the 1950s was 217, same room number used by Stephen King and The Shining. Mm. Uh, along with Angel's red jacket, uh, I had forgotten that the leading lady in Rebel Without a Cause is also named Judy. Oh, nice. And apparently the um, lady in Vertigo is also named Judy, and she also used to live in Salina, Kansas. Nice. Reference to Psycho, a young woman who, on a whim, steals money from a bank and regrets it. Chinatown, the P.I. in this episode is named C. Mulvihill, a reference to the corrupt P.I. and former cop Claude Mulvihill. After being hit by Angel, he wears a bandage on his nose similar to the one worn by Jack Nicholson. Hmm. Normally I don't read goofs because I don't really care about this that as much, but because um, normally they're like, a mic is there, or you can see a vampire in a mirror. This is kind of boring yeah. to read over and over again, but this one's kind of interesting. The $100 bills in Judy's bag appear to be the style introduced in 1996 with the larger Ben Franklin head design and not the style that would have existed in Damn. 1952. See, that's some fashion knowledge. I respect <laughs> it, but do not possess it. In German, this was called Das Hotel Hyperion. Straightforward. <laughs> the Hotel Hyperion. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, like, once I watched the episode, obviously I got the cultural reference of Are right. You Now or Have You Ever Been? But, so therefore, like, I don't know if they needed to necessarily, the German producers of this show, assume that they had to change the title because Americans would get that cultural reference and Germans wouldn't because it's <laughs> embedded in the episode itself. <laughs> Do you think a... Uh, Apparently that hoop, hoop-dee-doo song I like is by <laughs> Perry Como. Nice. I know him from the Animaniacs. What were you saying? Um, I wonder if people actually would recognize the reference just based on the TV clip. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, this is probably like the fifth or sixth time that I've seen the episode, and I always thought it was like a cool, like, kind of avant-garde title, like, and this was like the first time where it stood out to me that that's literally what he says in the TV clip, and even then I still didn't put it together until I googled, are you oh, now, wow, really? have you ever been, and the and the Google autocomplete was like, a communist. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, oh, right. When you went through right, right, uh, right, right, right. Ellis Island Customs back in the day, you had to sign it, too. There's a, a box yeah. on the on the form. Hmm. I didn't know that Ellis Island was still, like, really running in the 50s. I don't... Uh, it definitely wasn't during the height of Ellis Island, but maybe, you know, communism was still, like, a thing yeah. in, like, 1918 when the Bolshevik Revolution happened or whatever. So it was just that the Red Scare, right. you know, became really 
big after the 1940s. And it's funny because it's a pretty useless thing to put on a forum. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I was actually at Ellis Island uh, recently, and yeah, it was basically like when it started, you know, there was like a couple illnesses that they checked for, and then just the list of you know, as more and more people wanted to come to America, like as much as that as any other reason, like the list of things that could keep you from not being able to come to America got yeah, longer definitely. and longer and longer, um, <laughs> including communism. And this is a factoid you'll enjoy. Um, an unmarried woman was not, even after she had passed inspection, was not allowed to leave Ellis Island until she had been picked up by her father. In fact, if she was engaged to be married and her fiance showed uh to showed up to pick her up they would marry them on the spot because only her father or her husband was allowed to escort wow, really? her away from the place um yeah so lots of people just got married on Ellis Island because that was the only way that they could leave <laughs> There's a story in my family about my great-grandparents. She came over here to do seamstressing from Italy and worked Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania for a while, and then she went back to Italy to pick her up a husband and came back. Must have been different times. Wait, how did we get on the subject? Oh, are you now or have you ever been? That's right. Well, yeah, we were talking about communism. Yes and how was the restriction, and then I talked about how I visited Ellis Island recently because I was in New York in July. Good, good trip. I went there um, Anyways. several, several years ago. Ellis Island. I expected to be more impacted yeah. than I was. It was strange. Yeah, it was okay. Um, my big regret <laughs> about Ellis Island. I mean, I do wish that I had spent a little more time there. But my actually big regret is that I had my old phone at the time which had a bunch of battery issues and was constantly dying on me as opposed to my new phone, which, you know, works better. And the Pokemon situation in Ellis Island was crazy (laughs) good. (laughs) But I only got to play for like two minutes because my phone was constantly dying. And I was like, man, you know, like I wanted to take in the history, obviously, but there are also points where I was just like walking from one place to another or riding a boat from one place to another. And I was like, I wish I was playing Pokemon right now. And then when I get to that place, you know, listen the, to the audio. The thing tour about Ellis Island for me was like <laughs> in the past, it was just a place that people got herded through, like a like a cow funnel, but for people. And now in the present, it is mm. also a place that people get herded through. So <laughs> I was just like, Ugh. yeah, it's a very symbolically accurate representation of America because it's like. There's a lot more metaphor freedom going on right. than like literal freedom, and it's like there's a promise that is, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, completely unfulfilled, left, you know, rotting like oh. a raisin in the sun or whatever the line is, but it's also not, uh, totally. Well, it would be more impressive if I remember the actual line. <laughs> But what happens to dream deferred? Um, Does it dry up like a raisin the, in the sun? Yeah. E. There you go. <laughs> You're obviously a bigger Langston Hughes fan than me. Um. Yeah, that there is, 
this weird tension there because like obviously so many people really did yeah. create a better life for themselves but the, the also there's all this you know racism and horrors and disease and you know uncomfortableness associated with the place as well that like and that that can be seen you know two kind of conflicting ways but that both are true at the same time one about how powerful their spirit was that they were over able to overcome all these like hardships in order to make themselves for right and i feel like gung-ho american western spirit and then of course the other side you know thinking about how a lot of that hardship was unnecessary because it was just americans and a lot of the um jerks the gung-ho americanism <laughs> really turned into like a shoe that they could beat people with because they're like oh it's the meritocracy you can do anything just as long as you are worth it you know you just got to try hard it's the american way so done so never be nice to anyone because why why the real world's not nice it's like you realize that we actually shape what the real it's world weird. is your decision to not be nice is contributing to that whole belief that the real world will eat you up it's like you are a tooth now Ooh. like you could be a soft if you could be a soft gum if you wanted but you've chosen you be a tongue, to be a tongue man what a gross metaphor <laughs> on that note but i love it you could be a tooth um, if again I mentioned this like in an early episode of Wolfcast and Pod, but if we were naming the episodes after things said on the episode of the podcast, as opposed to on the episode of the show, you could be a tooth would be a good title. It's be the title of the my episode. next single. <laughs> um, if you are enjoying the podcast, right? which how could you not Come be on. with metaphors like that? Uh, subscribe to us using your podcast listening application and give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. But for now, uh, this podcast is the one good thing we ever did together, Marcia. The only good thing. You make sure to tell the world that. Take poof. Bye.